HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit surreyfarms.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. On Heritage Radio Network, I'm Erica Wides, your host. Let's talk about Columbus, not the Ohio City. Although I have actually heard that Columbus is very nice and has a very nice gay neighborhood, good little gay community there, which is what every livable city needs and more than you can say for Manhattan these days. So, no, I'm not talking about you, Ohio, and really... Don't we all think that there's been quite enough said about Ohio these days? Thank you very much. Can we just stop talking about Ohio? No, the Columbus that I'm talking about. You know who I'm talking about. Columbus, as in, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, etc., etc. You know, Christopher Columbus, the guy who discovered the Americas, as we were all taught discovered us. The voyages of Columbus and all of his colleagues in the explorer industry introduced European culture to us, brought, well, when I say us, I don't mean us, I mean brought us to this land, I guess, brought European culture to the new world, new old world, and it brought along with Europe, you know, all of its art and music and philosophy and religion and all of those things that the Europeans had already invented and left us with so many wonderful things too, like strip malls and fracking and SUVs and Paul Ryan and Honey Boo Boo and reality shows about girls with two heads and the Electoral College. I'll get to some of the more wonderful things about the invasion of European culture 
shortly. But really, the best legacy of Columbus is that now we have his day. We have Columbus Day. And what that really means is that you get another three-day weekend right in the middle of the best part of the fall to get you through the stretch from Labor Day to Thanksgiving, where otherwise you would not have any other day off. I mean, okay, maybe Veterans Day, but really who celebrates that? Election Day, maybe you get the day off. But seriously, Columbus Day rocks because you get a nice little three-day weekend in the most beautiful part of October. So what did I do to celebrate Columbus and all of his greatness and strength? I went hiking because that's what I do on the weekend. And I went hiking so I could celebrate all those wonderful things I listed above. And just to celebrate the fact that I had a three-day weekend. And if that isn't like super enough that we get another three-day weekend right a month after Labor Day, what really matters the most on this super important holiday, the serious part of it, is that the alternate side parking rules in Manhattan are also suspended. And that's what makes Columbus Day totally rock in my opinion. I mean, also, we have all these Jewish holidays going on, as I talked about last week, which means basically you can park wherever you want, whenever you want for the entire month of October in New York. And how great is that? That's, of course, if you have a car, which you shouldn't if you live in New York. But I do because I have to leave the city every weekend to maintain my sanity. Now, that's really what Columbus Day is about to me. I mean, who really remembers or really even cares about the millions, millions of indigenous North and South Americans who had already discovered themselves, they knew they were living here, and who Columbus and his co-conquistadors wiped out completely with their rampaging and pillaging and disease and rape. And does anyone really think about that when they're shopping for their new mattress during the Columbus Day sales? I don't think so. Now, of course, we should all really think about this. We should be serious about it. We shouldn't be making jokes about this, about genocide. And we should acknowledge the exploitation and the horrible ways that the European explorers came to the New World. Which wasn't really new, you know. It was already really, really old by that point. And they treated the New World like their own personal after Oscars free swag giveaway party. They just plowed in with their big bags and started filling them up with all kinds of free stuff. And we should think about how they brought smallpox and all these other horrible old world Euro diseases that didn't exist here before and how they killed relentlessly and they stole all the gold from the Inca and the Aztecs and they destroyed their ancient sophisticated civilizations and their math and their corn agriculture secrets and all of it. So I am... I'm acknowledging it. I am saying, yes, it was a terrible thing. I know how bad it was. But I don't really feel guilty because it was not my people. It wasn't my fault. My people were nowhere near Spain around that time because my people had already been kicked out of Spain by that time. And they'd been sent east. They'd been sent packing to basically grow pebbles and potatoes somewhere in Russia by the Spanish. So I had nothing to do with it. And when we got there to Russia, we basically grew shorter and paler and we lost our Spanish accents and we changed our names. So the Spanish did it to us too. So I feel for you Aztecs and Incas. Well, I would feel for you if there were any of you actually left. Now, 
I also love one thing about Columbus Day, which is that out there, out west, you know, out west, because this is east, out west, in super PC Berkeley and Oakland, California, they don't call it Columbus Day anymore. They call it First People's Day or First Person's Day. First People's Day. To remember and acknowledge the people's peoples who lived in North and South America first. They've turned Columbus Day on its head, which is kind of cool. And that's the difference between liberals and conservatives is that liberals feel bad about it all and conservatives don't. But the point is that everybody enjoys a good mattress sale. So when you're in the food world and in the food history world, the discovery of America, so to speak, the crossing of the Great Seas, the first European feet to hit these shores, technically, even though the Vikings and the Basque had actually been to North America hundreds of years before the conquistadors. And of course, don't forget about ancient Mormon Jesus, because he was really the one who came here first. But all that is referred to in the food world as the Columbian Exchange, and not just actually in the food world. In the historical realm, too. The Colombian Exchange. Now, the Colombian Exchange is not the exchange of weapons for cocaine. That would come much later. That was more of the modern-day Colombian Exchange. No, no, no. The Colombian Exchange we're talking about was the introduction of all the different foods that the whiteies had brought with them to the New World. And all the stuff that they brought home back to Spain and the rest of Europe with them after raping, pillaging, and plundering the New World. Now, when they came to the New World, they found a lot of different foods that had already, you know, that existed here. Some foods that were completely native indigenous to here, and some that had traveled up into North and South America via much earlier patterns of human migration. But what they found mostly were corn, of course, because corn was that staple grain of the Inca and the Aztec civilizations and they found potatoes which are from places like Peru and they found bison in North America you know the great American buffalo those giant animals that basically just killed all at least in North America that's what they found and elsewhere of course in the tropics they found rubber and they found turkeys and chocolate well in the form of cacao and vanilla which is a pod from an orchid and chilies and tomatoes and sweet potatoes and manioc and peanuts and tobacco and pineapples, pecans, cranberries, cashews and chia and lots of other things that were already growing here. But from Europe, they brought foods with them, too, because they didn't know what they were going to find when they came here. So on their ships from Europe, they brought pigs, domesticated pigs and cows, cattle and horses. There were no horses here before they were brought over by the Spanish and honeybees. You know that? No honeybees brought from Europe. And sheep and wheat and oats and smallpox. That all came on the ship too. And almonds and broccoli and apples and beets and melons, figs, plague, chicken pox, malaria, measles, and whooping cough too. All came over with the Europeans. It was a it was a fair exchange. We'll give you the potato. You give us smallpox. Seems fair. Now not to mention that the Europeans already had all the spices and the sugar and the coffee and tea that they had gotten by already pillaging and plundering in the east. They had already been traveling in the east, and the Arab invasion of Europe brought all of that stuff in, too. But that melding and crossing over of food and agriculture is what we call the Columbian Exchange, even though plenty of other ocean-bound rapists and plunderers, I mean, explorers, were involved. Other 
than Senor Cristoforo Colombo himself. He had plenty of cronies. Now, without the Colombian exchange, if we had been living up here in North America, up here in the colder parts of North America, our diet would be fairly simple. We wouldn't have had that much variety. We'd basically be eating corn and bison. I mean, bison, when you think about it, are just cattle who get a lot of exercise. They run around on the plane. So imagine it, a steady diet of corn and meat, corn and meat, corn and meat, every single day, corn and meat. I mean, thank God for the Colombian exchange, because now we can put salsa on our corn chips when we eat them with all of our meat. So our corn and meat-based diet that we have now has a little more variety to it, a little more spice. And we have chocolate, of course. And this counts for both Colombian exchanges because, of course, drugs are a lot more fun than guns. So the modern Colombian exchange kind of works, too, although conservatives see it the other way around, that guns are a lot more fun than drugs, which brings us to yet another difference between conservatives and liberals. But that's a whole other show. Maybe we'll do that one getting up toward Election Day. So you see, Columbus Day is much, much more than just a mattress sale and a parking spot. So Columbus and his crew, they were all about reaching out, reaching out beyond the boundaries of their small, diseased, festering, old-world countries. You know, they had gone through the plague, the Black Death, the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, the Crusade, all of that European stuff that I'm telling you out of order because I have no idea, really, the order of all that stuff in European history. I can't even remember what I did three days ago. But they wanted to see beyond all that. Europe was small, it was old, it was diseased, it was falling down already. They wanted to go beyond the horizon. And with the backing of the crown and the church, who we know always have everyone's best interests at heart, they journeyed forth. They set sail for new lands to claim and discover and seize and destroy and bring home lots of booty and steal a lot of land at the same time. And basically, they went into a place that was already functioning perfectly well with logical systems in place and millions of years of evolution or, for certain listeners, 6,000 years of a totally static, unchanging environment. Technological advances and careful planning in place already, and they totally trashed it. They wrecked the existing naturally occurring systems, ignored the patterns of nature and the seasons, and just slapped their own dysfunctional, arrogant, misguided European ideas right all over it. Hmm. Now, does this sound a little familiar? Does this sound maybe a little bit like foodiness to you? The way we have had these perfect systems of growing and producing real food based on tens of thousands of years of agriculture and eating and producing food... And then over the course of 50 years, sailed in on our diesel-powered galleons with the flags of General Foods and Kraft and Coke and Monsanto flying high on the mast. And Donald Rumsfeld in his Captain Hook garb at the helm and proclaimed the world of food as now under the flag of foodiness. A flag that pictures a skull crossed with a syringe of insulin and a plastic bendy straw. Doesn't it kind of strike you as some of the same occurrences, perhaps? And just like that, it all fell apart. Just like when the Spanish came and destroyed the New World, their whole civilization fell apart. Foodiness sailed in and its ship, and it all fell apart. Foodiness 
Ikaras. Those sneaky marauding pirates with their corn syrup and their flavors and their colors and their omega-3s and their cupcake-flavored vodka and their ketchup with added protein and their artificial sweetener packets with added vitamins. It conquered us. They came sailing in while we were asleep and they stole all our food and they ran it through the Foodiness Master 3000 machine and it spit out protein bars and turkey bacon and skinny vodka and trix yogurt and water that makes you thin and young and smart. And some of us saw the invasion coming and we fought it. We saw the ships on the horizon and we saw what it was and we said, no, not me. I won't go there. But some of us developed Stockholm Syndrome and identified with those bad pirates and their ships. And they said, hell yeah, it's my God-given right to eat shit, man, and I'm going to do it. And then they died of smallpox. I mean, diabetes, which is really kind of the modern-day smallpox when you think about it. And now I always prided myself and thought that I was one of the resistors. I was one of the ones who said, hell no, I'm not that stupid. I can see through your evil plan. I'm a chef, damn it. I'm all about real food. I know what you're doing. But there was also kind of a part of me that was secretly kind of intrigued. Now, not by foodiness, because I hadn't at that point really identified it concretely. It was more abstract. That wouldn't happen for a few more years when I met Chris. You know, Chris, my co-producer and publicist, Chris. We actually met at a networking event in Midtown Manhattan. I know it's true. Can you believe it? Let's get real. Is the result of networking. Now, I'm coming out about it right now, but the point is it was a networking group that met in person, which is a lot less loserish than like a meetup there or something that you do online. Okay, let's just put it out there. And we don't go to the networking group anymore now that we found each other. But back to foodiness. I wasn't intrigued by the foodiness products themselves, by the protein bars. I mean, I'm, I'm not really into chocolate marshmallow flavored particle board, but I was really intrigued by the science. Now, growing up, I was always kind of pigeonholed you know, as the artistic type. You know, in school, there were like the English people and the math people. And I was always more of like the English, the social studies kid. Like I spent a lot of time in the art room and smoking a lot of pot. And, you know, I liked science, but science was always lumped together with math. And math for me was a total disaster. And I stopped after the minimum required classes. You know, you had to take it up to a certain point and I just stopped, which is too bad, it turns out, because I could have really used it. Now, The math part was true because I still to this day can't even multiply fractions. I don't know how. I admit it. But I love science. And I've often felt as if like maybe I missed my calling. Like maybe I should have been someone who worked in a lab, not a kitchen. I don't know. So when I got into food and I became a chef, the science part of it actually really excited me and really attracted me. And after about 15 years of cooking, you know, professionally and teaching, I thought that Maybe I wanted to get more into food science. Like maybe I wanted to combine my years of chefiness with my interest in science and maybe go work in R&D, you know, research and development or product development. Now, I hadn't yet really equated or conflated product development R&D with foodiness yet. I thought, well, I can go into that field and I can work for good companies, the ones who are working for good, not evil, you know, like I could work for like Kashi or Morningstar Farms or one of those good ones like that, who it all turns out are, you know, owned by Monsanto or General Foods or 
Coke or one of those guys. I didn't really know yet that those companies were really just like Hollywood sets of happy green crunchy companies. They were really just painted scenery in front of the massive corporate foodiness monster. And I thought, I'll work for them and I can develop new and better veggie burgers and fiberific cereals. I mean, how cool would that be? I didn't really think of that stuff yet as foodiness. Like, I was like the peasants in the tiny primitive ancestral village who were dazzled by the blue eyes and white skin of the gods who sailed into the harbor on their carved ship, you know, with their magical weapons of test tubes and flavor molecules all shining in my dark brown eyes. Their cushy jobs in big companies with benefits and travel allowances and conference and free pens shaped like pickles and free packets of salt-free salt being handed out by these like nice kind of nerdy middle-aged guys from the Midwest. It was all really dazzling to me. I was like those cowering Inca standing there beneath the giant horses with the huge Spanish conquistadors blazing up in front of them. So I thought I'd check it out and I thought I would see what my prospects were. And so I joined an organization of research chefs and they called what they were doing food technology or they were food technologists. And that alone probably should have like scared the poop out of me. And as scary as the moniker food technologist was and how similar it actually sounds like Scientologist, I was looking for a change. And so I kept going. I joined because this research organization offered food science classes for chef and my employer would pay for me to go. And I really wanted to learn more about food science than what I had basically taught myself in 15 years of cooking. So I went to the classes in New Jersey at Rutgers, but not the regular Rutgers, like the rural Rutgers. There's another Rutgers, like in the farm part of New Jersey. And I found out pretty quickly that this wasn't just basic food science for chefs. There was an agenda. This was like when you go to Israel and you're just kind of walking around and you're in Jerusalem and you're looking at the Western Wall and a very nice young person comes up to you and says, excuse me, are you Jewish? And you say, yes, that's why I'm in Israel. And they say, would you like to come for Shabbat dinner? And you think, sure, I'm a poor student traveling alone. Why not? And so you go and then they proceed to keep you up all night and get you drunk and you don't they don't let you leave until they've broken you down and you realize that in your sleep-deprived, drunken haze that, yes, being Hasidic is the way to be a real Jew. And yes, I will marry your brother and live in the West Bank and make a baby every 12 months and shave my head. Yes, that's the answer. Now, P.S., that didn't actually happen to me, but I know about it happening. But it is a classic cult technique. So these food science classes had an agenda, And the agenda was that food science for chefs who wanted to work for foodiness megacorporations. And this was how you did it. It would be like getting a degree in political science only to find out that they actually teach you only how to be an evil Republican operative who knows how to turn the honey boo-boos of this country into a voting block. Because the foodiness megacorporations are on the prowl and they're all looking for real chefs these days because they want chefs to help them make foodiness that looks more like real food. And the food science-only guys who work there aren't that good at it. It's sort of like having the engineers design the cars without the designers involved. So the cars would just be these gigantic engines with keyboards and joysticks, but no doors and no windows. So the foodiness companies were looking to get real chefs to kind of cross over to the dark side, and a lot of them 
do because it's very tempting, I gotta say. The pay and the life is way better than working in a restaurant. You get to travel, you have your weekends off, you get to wear a polo shirt with the company logo on it. That's the best part because polo shirts look so good on short, pear-shaped women like me. And they started teaching us basic food science, which was great. But it was all through this filter of industrial applications. Like, how do you control for bacteria in 100-pound batches of marinade for pre-grilled chicken patties? Or how do you use vacuum sealing and tumbling to get that marinade into the chicken? And that's when I started to get suspicious because I had always just gotten flavor into food by seasoning it and marinating it and cooking it properly. We were being taught to use vacuum sealers and giant machines like rock tumblers and injection pumps. And I was getting a little scared of those. But the guys who really intrigued me the most were the flavorists. Because just like one should always be wary of the suffix ologist, because it's often used to give non-scientific endeavors a hint of respectability, adding ist to a subject is really a good thing these days. Like the term stylist alone should give one pause. Now, there was something very Orwellian about it all. I mean, after all, flavor is something that already exists. So the only real flavorist in the universe is nature. And she doesn't really take any time to get credit for it these days. What she needs is a good publicist. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, more about my adventures in food science, foodiness, madness. Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards and Sons. Edwards Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. The Edwards name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. Optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit www.surreyfarms.com. Welcome back to Let's Get Real on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Erica Wides, your host. So I was taking these food science classes and I was starting to get a little suspicious. I was starting to think there was an agenda there. Maybe this isn't just about pure food science. Maybe this is something else. Maybe they're trying to get me into something here. Now, I was kind of looking around for a new job, so it sort of made sense. Now, for some reason, I find what I find really fascinating about all this is that is the science and the art of flavor and fragrance development. I find it amazing and fascinating. And it's that's a really weird thing because I hate perfume. I can't be around it. I can't stand it. It makes me sick. It gives me a headache. I hate perfume, but I love the science behind it. I love the idea of the flavor and the fragrance molecule and how they can be harnessed and caressed and synthesized and replicated. And I think that's just incredible. And I thought, 
okay, this is all really interesting. Maybe I'll be a flavorist. Being a flavorist would be really cool. Now, I had read the books, like I read Perfume, such a good story, Jitterbug Perfume, such a good book, The Emperor of Scent, all fascinating books. I was completely engrossed with those books. And I thought, well, I don't, I can't be a fragrance person. I can't be a nose, a professional nose, because I'm allergic to all of that stuff. But I could be a flavorist. Now, flavorists get to travel all over the world seeking out the next new flavor molecule to bring home and add to the new next new brand of gum or yogurt or, or sports drink. But they get to travel and taste things all over the place. Sign me up. So I started talking to the flavor guys because some of the classes were taught by flavor guys. And they said, great, do you have a chemistry degree? No. I didn't even take high school chemistry because I was so convinced that I was going to be an artist and live in a loft and have a fabulous life. And who needed to take chemistry? Well, they said you could go back to school and get a master's in chemistry. And then you would have to do a seven-year apprenticeship. And then you'd have to memorize 5,000 chemical flavor compounds and be tested on it. How old are you? So I'm not a flavorist, obviously. And the more I learned about food technology, the more freaked out I started to get. Now, I went to the conference of this organization just to kind of check it out. Because I was still thinking, like, I could still do this. I could still work in this field. I could work for good, not evil. And also, my employer paid for me to go. So, And it was in New Orleans, so I went. And I went to their conference, and I met all these nice people. And they worked for companies like Cargill and Heinz and Land Lake and General Foods and National Starch Innovation. Yeah, National Starch Innovation. That is not a joke. That's the name of a real company. That sounds like a name I would make up, but it's not. And they all said, you should totally apply to our company. We need chefs, and we are especially looking for women. But there are almost no food corporations in the New York area, except Kraft, which has a small facility in Westchester, or Pepsi in Purchase. But you know what? Minneapolis is a really great place to live and raise a family. And then I saw things at the trade show that was part of this conference that started to make me really sick, like pre-flavored skewers, like flavor-infused skewers that you can stick into meat so the flavor gets in the meat from the inside out, which doesn't really seem all that wrong, but something about it kind of, I don't know, something not right. Or spray-on spinach powder for all your snack food applications. I started to get a little sick, and I also started to develop a little idea in my head. And I came home, and I had second thoughts. I thought, can I really see myself designing strawberry-flavored pesticides or meat-flavored faux grill marks on tofu burgers or vodka bottles that smell like cotton candy or diet seasoning that doesn't taste like actual lemon chicken but that mimics the flavor of artificially flavored lemon chicken? Am I that kind of person? I don't think so. I think I smoked enough pot and made enough art in college in my life to know that I'm not that kind of person. Can I? But, I thought, can I be a spoiled media elite with my own Colbert Report-inspired talk show about food and foodiness surrounded by stylists and handlers and publicists and trainers? Yes! I am that kind of person. But I'm just not the kind of person to sit in a, in a lab and design fake lemon-flavored tea drinks for tea partiers. Let's get real here. I'd be working for the wrong kind of people. Now, I'm all for selling out as long as you sell out to the right kind of people. 
And then a year or two later, it turns out that a friend of mine at work, a very good friend and colleague, decided that she was indeed that kind of person. Because she realized that maybe she couldn't support her three kids and her unemployed husband anymore on her teaching salary. And maybe she needed something more stable and more corporate with better benefits. And she decided that she would apply for a job in R&D at Unilever, which is in Englewood, New Jersey. Pretty close. Close enough. You know Unilever. It's one of the largest companies in the world. They own almost everything. And after she got hired for the one job in the industry that I probably would have applied for a few years before that, and it was close enough that I wouldn't have had to relocate to some horrible place, and it paid six figures and sends her around the world first class every year to taste new stuff, and she got the job, and immediately she loved it. But you know what she does for them? She develops P.F. Chang's frozen meals in a plastic bag, and she develops new Bertoli pasta sauces in a jar and now she's the new face of noor you know noor k-n-o-r-r new face of noor so if you go to the supermarket and you see a shelf full of noor seasoning and sauce packets there's a picture of her cute little israeli face sticking out from the side of the shelf because she is the face of noor and she loves it and she's been really successful there and i'm happy for her because she needed that kind of stability and she's doing really well and weirdly I'm a little jealous of her, even though what she does makes me kind of sick because she's a seriously gifted chef and she was a great teacher. And now she's developing packets of instant sauce for people who can't cook and for a new generation of people coming up who've never even seen or tasted real sauce. So the Nora packet will be the real sauce for them. And that was the end of my contemplation of a leap over the chasm into the yawning jaws of foodiness. I didn't jump. I looked. I leaned out over that chasm and I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't go to work pushing us even further down the rabbit hole. Make a buttload of money cashing in on how far down the rabbit hole we are with a cooking show about foodiness? Sure. But pushing us further into motorized scooter land? No. So instead, I turned back around and I decided to cash in on foodiness from the other direction to make exposing it my mission and thus get it maybe a successful TV show or a web series and then get the trainer and stylists and teams of helpers that I deserve. After all these years, I decided to make reporting on foodiness my mission instead. I mean, after all, I didn't want to make foodiness and I don't actually think we can stop it from being made. I think that train has left the station. We have Armageddon coming up very shortly, and maybe that will take care of it for us. So we can only hope. But I can certainly stop people from eating it, or at least get people to think about it before they eat it, or at least update about how they know better than to eat foodiness, and then they can retweet Let's Get Real's tweets about foodiness, right? I can't make it go away, but I can make people think about it. So basically, I went to the foodiness rabbit hole abyss, and I looked down and I said, hell no. I fought the urge to join them. The first class travel, the cushy deluxe test kitchen, the lab coat, the polo shirts. Nope, not for me. Like I said, I can be bought, but only for a fair trade, responsibly harvested, sustainable price. 
The fact is that it all just seemed too Orwellian. Too much trickery. It was like food doublespeak. It wasn't even that they wanted chefs there to create the next new junk or foodiness product. They wanted chefs there to take the foodiness and make it look more like real food. It was like they wanted us to go down the rabbit hole, come back out the other side, and then dig a whole brand new one. Even the term food technologist kind of creeps me out. They actually came up with a new term for themselves. They call themselves culinologists. Culinologists. It like ugh, ugh, it gives me the heebie-jeebies. It was like it was like looking into Willy Wonka's lab, but he wasn't the really kind, twinkly-eyed Gene Wilder Willy Wonka. He was the creepy kind of femi Johnny Depp Willy Wonka on Adderall. I mean, after all, food is already its own technology. Nature took four billion years to make it that way. And it takes about four years to turn it into fake Chinese food in a microwavable pouch that's either going to give you cancer or diabetes and both. And either way results in going through drive throughs on mobility scooters and watching Jersey Licious and voting for you know who. Because you see, we can modify food on our own. That's called cooking. We can use technology to help us grow better food. That's farming. But to make fake food doppelgangers in a lab that just make people fat and sick and, by the way, taste like crap, all the while having to wear a polo shirt? Who does that? Well, my friend does, and I love her. And she actually looks really good in the polo shirt. But she's an exception. But not for me. No thanks. It wasn't even the selling out that bothered me so much. Like I said, I can be bought. We all have our price as long as it's to the right people. What bothered me was the cultiness of it, the Kool-Aid drinkingness of it. The way they all believed that this was all okay. It was better than okay, that it was good, that they were doing something good. The more food products that flooded the markets, the better. They all believed in it. Even the guy from National Starch Innovation, who was young and cool and gay, seemed to be okay with it. Now, shortly after that, he moved on to Starbucks, where he started developing their breakfast sandwiches. That's actually a better gig, I think. I mean, even I eat those breakfast sandwiches once in a while in an airport or something. And, you know, I can admit it. At least I know better, and I can admit the difference. And I started thinking about some of the stuff that I had learned in those classes when I was thinking about doing this show. I mean, it was like six or eight all-day sessions. So I learned a lot, although I was looking through my notes from then, and apparently I've forgotten everything that I learned because none of it looked really familiar. And some of it really creeped me out. And I thought, well, how can I profit off of this? I mean, I mean, how can I empower my listeners off of this? And I decided that I might share with you some of the basic foodiness tricks that you're probably falling for on a daily basis. You know, it turns you into a chump. And it's our commitment at Let's Get Real in the customer service and customer care department to ensure that you are never a chump to foodiness. Now, the foodiness industry tricks us into believing things, and a big one is smell. Specifically, how their foods have specific smells, but they aren't the actual smells of the food. Just saying that actually makes me sort of feel like I'm back in high school and took a big bong hit. So let me explain. A good example of this is when you open up a vacuum sealed can of coffee, 
Now, although many people now, I think, buy beans whole and grind them at home, which is, of course, how you should do it and what you should do. But people still buy coffee in a can like my mom used to do. And there's still, I think, a huge market for canned coffee grounds. And, you know, my mom used to do that. And those cans were actually really useful. Anyway, when you stick the can opener into that can and you hear that vacuum seal break and then you get that whiff of roasted coffee smell. Can you visualize it or can you smell you eyes it? Right. That's how when you visualize a smell, you smell you eyes it. Ah, just like the seal that mom used to break on the coffee can. So remember you would open that seal and you get this really big rush of roasted coffee smell. Well, you're not smelling the coffee in the can. What you're smelling is coffee smell gas that they inject into the can as they seal it up. Mm-hmm. They collect the coffee smell molecules from the roasting plant and then they condense it into a gas and then they inject it into the can. Scary, right? I mean, it's like new car smell is more natural than that. And that comes in a can too. You can actually buy it. Spray, new car smell. And they do the same thing with orange juice in a carton. The orange juice in that Tropicana carton that you buy, it might be more than six months old by the time you get it. They pool orange juice in these massive storage tanks and then keep it like just near freezing so they can still call it fresh. And then they package it as the market demands. But by then it's lost all of its just squeezed fresh smell. So the same thing happens at the squeezing plant. The vaporized orange oil fragrance as it floats up is collected and concentrated and then injected back into the cartons when they package it. So when you open that carton, you think you're getting nice, fresh, fragrant orange juice, but you're not. I mean, don't you think it would be easier to just sell fresh orange juice that just smells like orange juice because it is orange juice? And Chris wanted me to point out here that when he was in high school, not only did he cheat extensively, he spent so much time on his cheating methods that looking back, he realized he could have just studied. It's kind of like that. It makes you kind of sick, doesn't it? I mean... It made me pretty sick. And really, you shouldn't be drinking orange juice anyway because there's way too much sugar in juice. And nobody really needs to be drinking juice at all. So now you have a good reason to stop, especially if you're drinking something like a screwdriver, because in that case, you need to really grow up and, you know, choose a new cocktail. Now, this is a really good one. We're running out of time here, but I'm going to whip you through this one. This one is way down the foodie food technologist rabbit hole lab where nothing is as it seems, including the color of your salmon. Now, you know when you go and you buy your farmed salmon, it's orange, right? It's that deep, dark, vibrant orange. And you know that that's not real either. You know that salmon is dyed, don't you? In nature, that orange color comes from the chlorophyll that the, that the fish eat when they eat small plants. And they eat little fish that have eaten the small plants. And they turn that chlorophyll into that beta-carotene coloring in their bodies. And that's why different species of salmon have different color flesh, and it can vary throughout the seasons and their lives because of what they've been eating. And I went over all of this on my old episode, You Are What Your Fish Ate, so you can go back and listen to that. But farm salmon get fed meals of corn and soybeans and ground-up fish meal, so they don't get the pigments from their food naturally. So they have to feed them beta-carotene pigment pellets to turn them orange. It's kind of like internal tanning for fish. And they also spray red meat with carbon monoxide to turn it brighter red. And they do that to fresh tuna, too. And trust me, as a Jew, I know gassing anything, never a good idea. 
So the foodiness industry will use all sorts of tricks to get you to buy. They want you to forget what the sensory experience of real food is and retrain your senses to react to foodiness senses like sweetness and saltiness and crunchiness and purpleness and fruitiness and on and on and on. I did an interview on the BBC a few weeks ago. And when I was talking about soda and how toxic it is, the British interviewer goes, well, but they taste so darn good. You just can't deny that. And I thought, well, that's because your palate has completely been fucked over by foodiness. So you don't know how good real flavor is. You only know what flavorists tell you is good. But before I could respond, he started talking about Lindsay Lohan running someone over in the meatpacking district, which is what drinking soda can lead to you caring about. And he probably never got a good whiff of the meatpacking district when it really was full of meatpacking plants. Now, that was what I call real and all of this flavoring goes with all the promises made by foodiness, the omega-3s and the fiber and the no-fat and the gluten-enhanced modified, nutrified. If it's a food in a package that needs to make a claim, then you can be pretty sure that what's inside isn't worth eating. I think there should be another category of labeling, along with nutrition information and ingredients. There should be the hidden category on the label, where it lists the stuff like mercury and hormones and antibiotics and all the ingredients that aren't actually added but are already inside of those ingredients, thanks to Captain Hook, I mean Donald Rumsfeld, and his maraudering foodiness pirate explorers. Basically, what I'm trying to tell you is that foodiness isn't just like the Matrix films. It is exactly the Matrix. You're not eating a steak. You're eating the idea of a steak that isn't the aroma of fresh coffee emanating from your can. It's a faux coffee scent sprayed into the can. You can't trust anything when it comes to foodiness, but you can trust food, but only real food, uneffed with food. So as we finish up our Columbus Day celebrations and we try out our new mattresses and we move our cars back across the street, let's think back to those hapless Indians in the New World. They didn't have horses or swords or guns to fight back with. They were pretty much screwed from the start. But you, my friends and foodiness foes, you are armed. You have the knowledge and the power. You can fight the foodiness conquistadors. You know that we're right and that they're wrong. They may have invented the Kool-Aid, but we certainly don't have to drink it. And like Chris says, if you're going to ask us to drink something, don't make it Kool-Aid. Make it Vauve Clicquot, or as I say, at least Prosecco. The point is that you can't trust anything or anyone anymore at all except me. The other point is that we're not ancient Aztecs. They may have had the first calendars and math and astronomy, but we have the Internet. And with that, you can go anywhere, especially right here to Let's Get Real every week where we fight back and we burn those Spanish ships before they hit our shores. Or at the very least, we start a Facebook campaign to bring Let's Get Real to Comedy Central. Fight the foodiness, people. And if you don't want to eat shit or be a chump or continue to believe that orange juice smells like orange juice, listen to Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food. Now, next week, we're going to have our favorite in-house nutritionist, Kristen Wortman, on to talk about foodiness diet products. You will never see that Atkins bar the same way again. We are so out of time that we have to go. Thanks to Joe in the control room. Thanks to Chris Nutter, my co-producer, and Julie Tannis, who did some research for us. Find us on Facebook at Let's Get Real or on Twitter at Let's Get Real Show. Find me, follow me, retweet my tweets. We'll see you next week. Bye.
Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes Store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.